Chapter 6 of With the Anzacs in Cairo by Guy Thornton. Recorded by Adam Bielka. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter 6 More Evils of Cairo. Perhaps the most insidious form of temptation is that presented in the Cancans. These places are often represented by the touts as being merely dance rooms, and the invitation is generally couched in these words. Can-can place, very nice, very select, real native dances. And the unsophisticated stranger is taken to what is really a brothel of the worst type, where sensuous dances are performed by either nude or very partially clad women. In fact, as far as I was able to learn, every can-can is a brothel, and nearly every native brothel is a can-can. It is impossible to estimate the number of men who have been reached and ruined in these particular hell-houses. One night, down at the fish market, I saw a group of 12 to 15 British and New Zealanders enter a can-can. I followed them as they stood waiting for the disgusting and suggestive dance to commence, and spoke to them plainly as to their absolute folly in thus tempting temptation and with all the power I possessed, urged them for their own good and for the sake of their people at home to come out. They listened to me dumbfounded, and when I had finished, their natural leader thanked me and, turning to the others, said, Look here, boys, the old captain's on the square, and it is up to us to clear out. I interviewed the head woman and bluffed her into returning the money the men had paid, five piasters, or about one shilling each, much to her disgust and their surprise. I can, however, remember time and again having to use not only moral but physical force in clearing these can-cans of mere boys who had been induced to attend them by their vile touts. I failed, I think, only about a dozen times in persuading men to leave these disgusting performances, and in each case the majority of the men who refused to leave were very much under the influence of liquor. Another pest is the tout. He is ubiquitous. His methods may vary, but his one aim is to inveigle men to these evil houses. Sometimes he places in the hand of a passerby an apparently innocent card which bears the address of some infamous woman. Often he seeks to stir up the passions of some young soldier by showing him under the pledge of the strictest secrecy the vilest of vile photographs. But more often he offers to show the soldier some place where ladies very select, very pity, live. There must be in Cairo hundreds, perhaps thousands, of these despicable parasites. Recently, I wrote this in December 1915, the police took active steps to rid the city of this class, happily with some success. It has always afforded me the keenest pleasure to administer well-deserved physical chastisement to members of this unholy and numerous profession. When I first commenced slumming, it was an easy matter to catch them red-handed, but as I and the nature of my work became better known, it was extremely difficult. I was foolishly congratulating myself on the evident fact that there was evidently fewer pimps in the Espikaya after two months' labor therein, and it was not until I was informed by an Arabic-speaking Cairo gentleman who accompanied me one night on my rounds that men and boys were detailed to watch for me, and my appearance anywhere reported by them was quite sufficient to make all the rest of these gentry disappear for the time being. There was one tout who was only too successful in his profession. I often yearned to have a touching interview with him, 
and impatiently awaited the opportunity. At last, one night, from the other side of the street, I saw him talking to some British soldiers, who were little more than boys. Pretending not to see him, I passed on, went up a side street, doubled back, and, keeping well in the shade, I listened to him exercising all his eloquence, which was great, and his English, which was small, in the endeavor to induce them to patronize the house for which he was touting. Making myself appear as small as possible, I advised the lads to tell him to clear out. My gentleman was virtuously indignant. What for you say that? Good house. Come on, sirs, addressing the soldiers. He had incautiously come too near. I made a jump, caught him by the scruff of his neck, twisted his galabia, and proceeded to administer a good shambok, the soundest thrashing he had ever received. He wept profusely and howled loudly. At length, my right arm became somewhat tired, and sympathizing with him in his evident desire to leave my presence, I helped him a few yards with a well-placed kick, and then he ran. When he had got half a chain away, just like a whipped puppy, he suddenly realized the awfulness of the torture to which he had been subjected, and let out a shriek of concentrated agony. It was very comical. The crowd, which had rapidly congregated, burst into a veritable chorus of laughter. There are few things an Egyptian seems to enjoy more than seeing another thrashed. And the last we saw of him, he was still running. I never saw that gentleman again. Unfortunately, as soon as the novelty of visiting the evil native quarter had worn off, the more evil-disposed men began to frequent the Espakaya European quarter of the city. These women were as bad, if not worse, than their darker-hued sisters. Their greater attractiveness, of course, increased the danger and more men owed their downfall and consequent disease to them than to the natives. One night, I was standing at the door of one of these better-class European houses, speaking to the men as they were about to enter and seeking to dissuade them. My efforts, I am thankful to say, were that night crowned with considerable success. Out of over a hundred men who were apparently waiting to enter, I do not think ten passed me. As soon as my work began to tell, the women came down from the rooms above and gathering behind cursed me. I had been cursed before, but never so heartily and certainly never in so many tongues. In every language of the Levant, in French, Arabic, Italian, Greek, and broken English, they gave full vent to their individual and collective opinion of me, and, needless to say, their opinion was the reverse of flattering, and they evinced no hesitation in calling a spade a spade. If I have survived that cursing with any good opinion as to my personal appearance or character, they are certainly not to blame. I stood it, smiling. At last, enraged at the fact that not a single man was entering their house, the madame, the woman who owned the place, as they generally did on similar occasions, tried to stir up a riot. She piteously appealed to the men to knock the old beggar down, not to let grandfather, my slum name, spoil them their pleasures and urged them to be men and show they weren't afraid of their officers. I have left out certain numerous and entirely unnecessary adjectives with which she garnished her speech. This last appeal was absolutely unneeded, for if there is an Australian who is afraid of his officer or anyone or anything, I have never met him. Three very drunk Australians drew their bayonets. This happened before the order was made prohibiting the men from wearing their bayonets in the city and, loudly proclaiming their intention of sticking the old beggar, tried to get through the crowd. The moment the riot commenced, Madame was frightened. 
Jumping behind me so as to be nearer the door in safety, she said, You flightened? I was a bit, but was not going to let her have the satisfaction of knowing it, so I replied, No. Me can't comprehend you, English. You not flightened anything, not even God, I think. I could not help laughing at such a statement, coming as it did from such a source. The men, who, however, had taken my warning to heart, said to me reassuringly, That's right, Captain. We'll stand by you. And then to the crowd, The old Captain, my name among the soldiers, in evident allusion to my white hair, is right. Let us stick to him. The small party of drunken Australians were still pressing in my direction through the crowd, which, with a laudable and pardonable desire to see the fun, divided as quickly as possible. My adherents caught them by the scruff of their necks, banged their heads against the opposite wall, and, lending them substantial aid with the toes of their boots, hurried them down to the main street. The leader of my party came up to me and said, What shall we do with these blessed women? I turned to the latter and urged them to go into the house and shut the door. They, for the most part, took my advice. But those who did not were seized by their shoulders, rushed into the house, and urged in very strong language to stay there and keep the door shut unless they wanted trouble. This advice was acted upon. A considerable amount of mental and spiritual as well as physical strain resulted from a long continuance of this work. The insufferable and indescribable stench was nauseating in the extreme. After hours of walking and talking in the espicaya, or fish market, it was a great relief to leave the horrors of the slums and breathe once more the purer air of the European quarter in Cairo. Night after night, when I reached my tent, I was too tired to sleep. This, at last, told on my health to such an extent that I became subject to serious internal troubles, and the PMO ordered me to cease from the slum work. It was with a sad heart that I perforce acquiesced to the MO's decision. Loathsome and unwholesome as were my labors, I had grown to prize wonderfully the privilege of being able in some degree to help our lads in the time of their great temptations. Another reason increased my grief at having to relinquish this work, and that was this. During the first few months, I met with great opposition, was often mobbed by the pimps and their satellites, and on two occasions nearly stabbed, but during the last five months, I had met with practically no opposition from either the women, pimps, or soldiers. In fact, on the contrary, many of the latter constituted themselves my unofficial bodyguard. I tendered to them my heartiest thanks. Some of them, I know, laid down their lives on the peninsula, but others are, at the present, February 1916, still on active service. I cannot speak too highly of the way in which the men met my overtures. Never, unless very, very intoxicated, did they resent my interference. Often, in fact, hundreds of times, they voluntarily thanked me for what they were good enough to term my real interest in them. The roughest and toughest among them have on many occasions shown their appreciation. One such man urged me to accept a large sum of money as a token of his gratitude, and was genuinely hurt when I, of course, refused. Although I was denied the privilege of seeing service on Gallipoli, despite my earnest endeavors to get there, I am in a position to bear my willing and hearty tribute to the magnificent results evident in Cairo, which followed the splendid labors of the New Zealand Padres at the front. They were Chaplain Major Luxford, Methodist, whose courtesy, consideration, and absolute fairness peculiarly qualified him for the position of senior chaplain. An ambulance orderly told me that when this padre was being carried down the hill, wounded nigh unto death, 
he begged the stretcher-bearers to put him down and take in his place a private who was not nearly so seriously injured. Chaplain Major Grant, Presbyterian, one of God's gentlemen who laid down his life in an enemy trench seeking to save the wounded, Chaplain Captain Dorr, Roman Catholic, of my own regiment, the Auckland Mounted Rifles, who, by his merry Irish wit, cheered many during the dark hours, and in his absolute unselfishness and fearlessness won the regard of all. He was wounded severely and is partially paralyzed as the result. Chaplain Captain Taylor, Anglican, whose frail-looking frame concealed an indomitable spirit, and whose faithful and long-continued labors, despite wounds and disease, attested his devotion to his master and to the men he served so well. Chaplain Captain Bush King, Anglican, of whose work the men speak so highly, and last but not least, Chaplain Captain King, Presbyterian, who, I believe, put in a longer period of service than any other chaplain on the peninsula. Their respective churches may be pardonably proud of their representatives, and I, though a base padre, perhaps to avoid misunderstanding, I had better say a chaplain at the base, bear testimony to the fact that in many cases the changed attitude to religion manifested by the returned soldiers was due to the practical Christianity they had seen exemplified in the lives of the padres and Christian men at the front. I know I reaped where they had sown, and from the time when the wounded and sick returned to Cairo, my work in the slums was aided by the evidently increased respect for the padre. The men had, in addition, been face to face, night and day, with death, and consequently they viewed life from a new standpoint. They had perforce considered eternal verities, and were in consequence much more disposed to listen to the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I was agreeably surprised to note the keen and intelligent interest that such a large number evinced in things Egyptian. When a lecture on Egypt was announced to be held at any camp YMCA, the tent was certain to be crowded. Many became, in a surprisingly short time, remarkably well informed as to the history of the various ruins, etc. It was impossible to visit any relics of antiquity without meeting crowds of soldiers. Others became ardent, and in several cases fairly successful, curio hunters. The Zaytun camp is pitched, as I have already said, on a portion of the site of the old university city of On. Amenhatl must be about 5,000 years old. Less than half a mile away was the old cemetery of On. In this cemetery, our boys were fortunate enough to unearth not merely the common mummy beads, but objects of real historical worth and value, which, with the colonial's eye to business, they sold at good prices to the museum. Encouraged by their success, I hired two Arabs, borrowed three shovels, and on a burning hot summer afternoon commenced an excavation at which I judged to be a promising tomb. We dug and perspired, perspired and dug, and at last our united labors resulted in one mummy bead, half the size of a wax match, which I promptly lost. One private of the Auckland Mounted Rifles discovered a fairly large marble covered with hieroglyphics, for which he received 14 pounds. An Otago lad, I cannot vouch for the exact truth of this, was so fortunate as to unearth the ring of the executioner of On, for which he received over 100 pounds. Every time I visited the great Cairo Museum at Bulak, there were scores of soldiers examining with the greatest interest the various great statues and mummies, notably that of the supposed pharaoh of the Exodus, 
and I was always called upon to explain how it was possible for the pharaoh, who they invariably asserted had been drowned in the Red Sea, to be lying there before them. My explanation was, firstly, that it is possible for a man to be drowned and his body recovered and mummified. Secondly, that neither Moses nor the inspired Miriam record that Pharaoh was drowned. Had he been so, they would have scarcely failed to mention it. Also, I pointed out that possibly Pharaoh, like many another king, stayed in a safe place when the conflict was impending. Or perhaps it would be more charitable to assume that, with the egotism which seemed to be the heritage of those high places, he realized how intensely valuable his life was to his people and declined to endanger their welfare by risking such a valuable national asset. Hundreds of boys, when on leave, used to congregate at the Muski, examining and buying quaint eastern curios. It is a libel to accuse them all, as has been done, of spending their pay on riotous living. Some did, but the vast majority did not. I say without fear of contradiction that tens of thousands of pounds were spent procuring gifts for the old folks, and some of the young folk too, especially those of the fairer sex. Time and again I have known men to be unable to buy even the cheapest articles at the YMCA because, as they explained, their last pay had been expended in the purchase of presents for loved ones in the homelands. The citadel, built by Saladin, usually called Saladin, the mighty and worthy antagonist of our King Richard I, was one of the favorite resorts of our men. Thousands of men nightly took advantage of the splendid facilities afforded them by the YMCA and spent their evenings in the tents at concerts, lectures, or writing letters. Every cinema in the city and suburbs was literally packed with soldiers, and each concert and theatrical entertainment was liberally patronized. I mention these facts to show that instead of a large proportion of our men nightly visiting the slums, as has been alleged, only a very small percentage were in the habit of so doing. Had all made a practice of going down the Espicaya and fish market, there would scarcely have been standing room in those districts. I am certain that not 5% of our colonial troops made a habit of frequenting these evil slums. End of chapter 6